0: Across America today, my guess is there are at least three different kinds of services taking place. Some services will display full-blown Christian nationalism. These services will be full of patriotic hymns singing the praises of the United States. The sermon will celebrate God's extraordinary blessings poured out on this country from His preservation of the pilgrims on the Mayflower. Through modern wars. The sermon will invoke the names of America's extraordinary preachers like Jonathan Edwards or great missionaries like Adnan Jetson. Some will even suggest that America's great wealth and bountiful prosperity stem from her full embrace of the gospel at the beginning. Other services will display anti-Americanism and will seek to sever Christianity from any credit for American greatness. Christianity is an oppressive, white, male religion that needs to be systematically dismantled, and that will be preached today. Christianity has been a tool to promote racism, slavery, and the Native American genocide. Some preachers will suggest that Christianity has fostered the evils of capitalism where the rich oppress the poor. Our Supreme Court has been taken over by Christians wishing to return women's rights to the Dark Ages. Jesus, for some, is the quintessential egalitarian, anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti-white, anti-authoritarian prophet of the gospel of social justice. Many, I hope we'll take a more biblically balanced approach to our history and our country. Should we not love our country, even while embracing its complex and often regrettable past mistakes? Roughly half of the 102 Mayflower Pilgrims were Christians, To some, that means the Mayflower Pilgrims, with their famous governing document, the Mayflower Compact, represent the beginning of Christian America. But roughly half of the 102 Mayflower Pilgrims were unbelievers. So to others, that means the Mayflower Pilgrims, with their Mayflower Compact, represent the beginning of a secular democracy. The pilgrims did indeed set about to build a church immediately upon landing in that bitter December of sixteen twenty. They read from their copies of the Geneva Bible. They prayed, they thanked God for the freedoms that they now had and for sparing their lives. Nevertheless, a second generation of pilgrims pressed Native Americans into slavery aboard the seaflower, shipping them off to the Caribbean. The story of those 102 passengers is actually quite complicated. And the story becomes exponentially more complicated by 1776 when the colonial population reached some 3 million. America does indeed have an inspiring, if complicated, history of both Native American and black preachers who, alongside their white counterparts, planted churches and expanded Christ's kingdom sent missionaries overseas. It's really a beautiful and wonderful story that I've actually devoted much of my life to understanding and teaching. The oldest gospel-preaching church in this country, so far as I know, is a Wampanoag church in Massachusetts. Unlike the surrounding pilgrim and Puritan churches, which have long since turned apostate, the old Indian meeting house in Mashpee still preaches the same gospel. It survived persecution from the Puritans, who themselves fled persecution in England. Now, that's a little complicated. America's first overseas missionary, born nearly 40 years before Adoniram Judson, was a former black slave named George Lyell. After planting two churches in South Carolina and Georgia, Lyell fled America on a British ship in 1776, 1776, to avoid being re-enslaved by the same Americans fighting the British for their personal freedoms. That's a little complicated. Lyell became a missionary to Jamaica, and against incredible opposition, he probably saw some 20,000 converts embrace Christianity. Our Christian heritage, particularly for our black and Indian brothers, was often forged on the anvil of government opposition, the same government that proclaimed the freedom and the equality of all men, which we rejoice in, in terms of our freedom, but we do want to see it equally applied. So in telling the history of our country, we really do need to tell the whole story, but with a view to loving our fellow man with a view to hoping for a better future. For me, the question is not whether I should love my country. I have students that have grown up in America that are more or less done with loving America. It's a sad thing. The fact is, love is a given. Love is a defining Christian virtue. Love is, in fact, the central attribute at the heart of the Trinity. The law was summarized in Christ's command to love God and to love my fellow man all around me. In fact, to fail to love one's own country as fellow citizens, as fellow man, is to break God's law. But biblical love, friends, always tells the truth. I love the American freedoms that have fostered so much ingenuity and creativity I love America's pristine and diverse landscapes. I love our stunning, beautiful national parks. But the truth is, those same parks hide some dark secrets about America's troubled history. Many are lands taken from the Indians and accessed through Indian reservations. And those reservations were carved out of some of America's ugliest, driest, unproductive, and worthless lands. You'll find there are no amber waves of grain or fruited plains or purple mountains' majesties. What you'll find is bitter poverty, alcoholism, staggering unemployment and despair stemming from truly unjust laws that nearly destroyed God's image bearers, laws that were being contested in the highest court in our land even last week. So, friends, how are we supposed to think about our country as we approach this July 4th holiday? I want to take just a few moments this morning, as I have on previous occasions, and caution us against the dangers of Christian nationalism. I don't think too many of us are going to be swept away by Marxist ideals, but it could be that we could be misled by Christian nationalism. So I want to take just a few moments today and deal with that as I have previously, I am concerned that we have believers today who are really not allowing their patriotic ideals to be governed by biblical priorities. Let's do that. Once we've done that, though, I want to identify four biblical reasons why we can and we should love our country. About a year ago, I was walking through a store, I think it was Hobby Lobby. We heard a Trace Atkins country western song just pulsing through the speakers. Listen to these lyrics because they illustrate Christian nationalism, the fusion of Americanism and Christianity into a single entity that's really hard to sort of tease apart. It's a song about an American soldier buried at Arlington National Cemetery. The song says, "'I never thought that this is where I'd settled down. "'I thought I'd die an old man back in my hometown. "'They gave me this plot of land, me and some other men, "'for a job well done. "'There's a big white house sits on a hill just up the road. "'The man inside, he cried the day they brought me home. "'They folded up a flag and told my mom and dad, "'We're proud of your son, "'and I'm proud to be on this peaceful piece of property.' I'm on sacred ground, and I'm in the best of company. I'm thankful for those, thankful for the things I've done. I can rest in peace. I'm one of the chosen ones. I made it to Arlington. I remember Daddy brought me here when I was eight. We searched all day to find out where my granddad lay. And when we finally found that cross... He said, Son, this is what it costs to keep us free. And every time I hear 21 guns, I know they brought another hero home to us. We're thankful for those, thankful for the things we've done. We can rest in peace because we are the chosen ones. We made it to Arlington. Yeah, dust to dust. Don't cry for us. We made it to Arlington. Well... Did you hear Christian themes in the song? How about this? I'm chosen. That is a Christian theme. We are chosen by God. Resting in peace. That is how Jesus describes the believer's death. It's like falling asleep. We finally found the cross. That's what it cost to keep us free. Well, indeed, the cross of Christ was the price of our freedom. But what does Adkins mean by chosen, resting in peace or freedom through the cross? Is he singing about Christ's gospel or is he singing about the American soldier? And the truth is, it's kind of hard to say. It sounds like they're just sort of blended together. And later in John's Gospel, Jesus is going to warn us against conflating spiritual freedom from sin with political freedom because they are not the same. The song implies that to be buried in Arlington is to make it to heaven. Every time you hear a 21 gun salute at Arlington, a hero came home to heaven. That's what it implies. Now, friends, I am grateful and I am moved by those endless white headstones on those emerald fields of Arlington. But what Atkins is singing is a false gospel. That is the gospel of jihad. To die for one's country does not guarantee an open gate to heaven. I have a former student who came to BGU after enlisting in the Marines. He lived a reprobate life through much of high school, much to the grief of his parents. But when he joined the Marines, he was no believer. However, he related to me how people's attitude toward him suddenly changed dramatically. His parents, his pastor, his Christian high school teacher suddenly treated him as a Christian because he wore the Marine uniform. And he said, I was utterly dismayed because I knew that my heart was utterly black with sin. Putting on a uniform does not change your heart. You need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. So again, as an American citizen, I am grateful for those who have died to secure my temporal political freedoms. I'm very grateful. There's nowhere else I'd rather live than in America today. I am grateful for those buried at Arlington, at Normandy, and in cemeteries across our country, and I have visited their monuments, and I honor these heroes. But as a Christian, you understand that I am grateful to Christ, and Christ alone, who died to secure my eternal freedom from sin through his gospel. We dare not conflate those two. Well, is there confusion? In the church today over this issue. My suspicion is yes, there probably is. There are some who think a strong American economy and the gospel somehow go hand in hand. There are some who elevate economic vitality over biblical morality, and that's a problem. There are some who seem to be more concerned with our Second Amendment rights to keep an arsenal in our basements than with Christ's Great Commission. And I'm fine with the Second Amendment. But I had a Christian brother with a very large gun collection tell me, when they come for my guns, I'm going to stand there in the street and I'm going to fight for my faith. But I'm really not sure what that means. You're just going to come out of your house with guns blazing and just kill as many people as you can, you're going to kill them in the name of your faith, in the name of Christ, I'm pretty sure that's going to end any great commission opportunities you might have with those people. So I think there is some confusion. But I want to be careful now that we don't go off in the wrong direction. I think the Christian nationalist does go in the wrong direction, but I think that we can overreact. And I think there are people who are just like totally unloving and unpatriotic and unconcerned with their country and it's like just give up and burn it all down and we don't care anymore. And I'm afraid that that is an attitude that we're seeing more and more with our young people. I've even had seminary students tell me this is their attitude toward their country and it's alarming. So, let's turn this in a much more positive direction. Let me give you four reasons, four foundational passages why I think that we can and should love our country. But we must, in fact, love our country if we are going to be good, biblically-based Christians. Let's turn first to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 shows us God's redemptive interest in the nations. Now in Genesis 9, following the flood, where God destroys the nations, God told Noah and his sons to fill the earth again. Then in Genesis 10, God tracks the nations descended from Noah's sons as they began to repopulate the planet. And of course, there was an initial setback, a major rebellion at Babel. But now in Genesis 12, our attention is suddenly drawn away from the nations and riveted on a single individual and his barren wife. But don't read Genesis 12 too narrowly. God does indeed tell Abraham in verse 2, look at these words, I will make you a great nation, Singular. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. A single great nation will descend from Abraham. But don't stop there. Verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, who are these families? Well, these are those disobedient families from Babel trudging their way all across the planet. Speaking all these new languages, God intends to bless them all. When God promised to bless every tribe and tongue and nation, you've got to remember, He's determined to bless those nations that descended from Babel, from rebellion. God is going to find a way to redeem those people. Even in judgment, God promises future blessing on the nations, Now in Genesis 13 and 15 we discover more of God's intent toward Israel. But turn to Genesis 17. And notice again how God's redemptive interest in chapter 17 is going to widen considerably just beyond, not just beyond, beyond just Israel. In Genesis 17 and verse 8, God speaking to Abraham about Israel says this, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He's talking about one nation, but look back four verses at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you in the nations, and kings shall come from you. Well, clearly, God's redemptive interest has always been much, much broader than Israel. Abraham was the father of the Jews. And Abraham, friends, was the father of nations. Abraham fathered six sons through Keturah, one through Hagar, and at least two others through concubines. That means that 90% or more of Abraham's children were Gentiles. Gentiles. Now, there is some confusion among Christian nationalists on this point. As early as the Puritans, and I'm not here just to demonize the Puritans, they did a tremendous amount of good, but they made some mistakes also. As early as the Puritans, many have viewed America as a kind of modern Israel whom God entered into a unique covenant with. In fact, the 17th century English Puritans had formally viewed England as a kind of English Israel. You actually see that in the literature. England is English Israel. They were God's peculiar chosen nation in the 17th century. However, when England failed as the covenanted nation, the theology of exceptionalism went over the ocean to the new world. America became the new Israel. New England was the new Canaan. America, to quote Governor Winthrop, became God's city on a hill, a true light of the nations as Israel had been in the Old Testament. Some Puritans believe that God actually entered into a special covenant with the Puritan Commonwealth, just as he had with Israel before Christ. The more radical among them came the view of the Native Americans as the Amalekites, and the Kenites, whom, whom some Puritan Joshua should just rise up and strike them dead. You do see that in the literature. My friends, all this was a failure to understand appropriately the Abrahamic covenant. God never intended to just be interested in a single nation. Even in the Old Testament. Even in the Old Testament, God had a redemptive interest in all the nations. So we are not numbered among God's chosen ones simply because we were born in America or buried in a military cemetery. God has chosen to call His people out of every tribe and tongue and nation. So friends, as a Christian, I really do truly love my country, but not because we are some sort of modern Israel, God's holy nation chosen out from all the nations of the earth. I love my country because God in the Abrahamic Covenant expressed His redemptive interest in America. And every other nation, nearly 4,000 years before America was born. Isn't that a beautiful thing? All the way back in Genesis, God expressed His redemptive interest in our country. Like all nations and tongues, friends, we are descended from the rebellion at Babel but the Abrahamic covenant gives us hope. Let's turn now to a second passage, Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. Two summers ago, when our country was being torn apart by racial strife, erupting from the death of George Floyd, I preached a sermon, a whole series called Seek the Wealth of the City. And that sermon series actually came from this text, so I'm not going to belabor our exposition this morning. But let's note that Jeremiah 29 records a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the Jewish exiles who were taken captive captive into Babylon. These were citizens of Israel, children of the covenant, now living in a foreign land. They were citizens of two kingdoms. And listen to what God told them through the voice of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And look at these beautiful words. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Friends, seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of Babylon. Babylon! Even in exile, seek the welfare of the country, the county, the city, The kingdom where you live. God's people were called, even in captivity, to seek the good fortunes of the city in which they lived. Now, if that is the case, should we not seek the welfare of America? Should I not seek the prosperity of my neighbor, my fellow American? Should I not weep when the Twin Towers collapse in New York City? Should I not pray for our doctors working overtime shifts dealing with a pandemic? Should I not hope for and pray for and work for better solutions to America's racial problems? Should I not please the plead, rather the, the cause of the Native American? Should I not vote for candidates who will legislate responsible policies that seek to decrease crime and increase jobs? Should I not support our police and our military personnel? Of course I should. Verse 7, friends, is a very generous mandate for broadly seeking the interests of the city where you live. It's very broad. But again, let's make a very important clarification. God was not telling Israel to seek the welfare of Israel in this case, but the welfare of Israel's enemy. Seek the welfare of Babylon, the very country that just invaded them and took them into captivity. Seek its welfare. Isn't that strange? Why is God interested in Babylon's prosperity? Is the answer obvious? If not, go back to Genesis and read the Abrahamic covenant again. God is interested in all the nations. Friends, why does the Old Testament include that strange little book of Jonah? Ever wonder about that? I mean, God. why does God send this prophet to seek the welfare of Nineveh in Assyria? Assyria conquered the northern tribes. They were brutal, brutal uh, soldiers. I won't even go into the details of what they did. These were brutal combatants. Yet God told Jonah, go seek the welfare of Nineveh. Why would he do this? If that's puzzling, go back and read the Abrahamic covenant again. The Old Testament unfolds, and as it does so, it's clear that God has a redemptive interest in Israel. But don't forget about all the Gentile nations, too, because they're all part of that Abrahamic covenant. That's why Jonah is in your Bible. So let's really apply this, friends. As a believer, I am interested in America's welfare. I love America, but as a believer in the Abrahamic covenant, I am also interested in the welfare of every other country on earth. I really am. I am interested in all of Adam's descendants. Embracing the second Adam. Friends, if Christ is interested in all the nations, can I be Christ-like without hoping for the prosperity of all nations? I mean, how do you do that? If Christ is interested in all the nations and all people and every tribe and tongue and nation, should I not be interested in them all as well, including my own? Taken to extremes, there was a kind of Christian nationalism that, that, that sort of measures God's blessing on America by the size of our military our nuclear arsenal, our bunker-busting bombs. The more gospel a nation has, the bigger the military. And here we do have to navigate carefully. I do believe in and support the American military. My father was in the military. My grandfathers were in the military. My great grandfathers in the military. I have family members in the military. I'm very much pro-American military, no doubt about it. Nevertheless, as a Christian, I really do long for the day that our swords will be beaten the plowshares. Don't you? It is a grief to see our bombs falling out of the skies on image bearers of God. Even, even, when, even when that's necessary, it's still a grief. Nearly a year ago, when President Biden, in my estimation, disastrously withdrew our forces from Afghanistan, the last missile strike in Afghanistan killed 10 non-combatants seven of whom were children, none of whom were alive 20 years earlier when the Twin Towers fell. Now, friends, that's a tragedy. So God does indeed entrust the power of the sword to the state. I have no doubt about that. Paul makes that clear in Romans 13. As a father of three children, I am glad for a strong military to protect their country. But at the same time, I am alarmed at times by trick-or-happy Christians as longing to see our bombs just falling out of the sky. It's like, just blow to all the smithereens. That's the answer. And you'll have to forgive me for using an illustration that I used just last year, but I, I really I want to go back to it because I think it really, really makes the point. Many of you will remember the Moab bomb. On April 13, 2017, many evangelicals celebrated the new Trump administration's use of the Moab, the mother of all bombs, a 21,000-pound explosive detonated over, over a tunnel complex in eastern Afghanistan. The Moab targeted a network of 600 to 800 ISIS fighters, and these were brutal Islamic combatants and i personally support responding to terrorism with military force i have no objection to them god hates the violence that turns jetliners into missiles and sends them roaring into the skyscrapers killing thousands god hates violence friends and so god has entrusted the sword to the state and not in vain romans 13 But around the time of the Moab detonation, I also learned from a former American army ranger and missionary with the Back to Jerusalem movement that Chinese Christian missionaries were inside Afghanistan working to convert ISIS soldiers to Christianity. The Back to Jerusalem movement, if you don't know, was a swelling missionary force seeking to carry the gospel from China through Islamic countries all the way back to Jerusalem And that former ranger spoke of even Chinese young ladies evangelizing ISIS with genuine success. And they were attempting to reach with the gospel the same ISIS combatants who were destroyed by the Moab. So I'm not here to question the dropping of that bomb. That's not my point. Here's my question, though, what really gets you more excited If you're more excited about the bomb blasting ISIS into eternity than Chinese missionaries evangelizing ISIS, then I think you've been distorted by Christian nationalism. Don't allow your earthly citizenship to eclipse your heavenly citizenship. Our first priority is the gospel. So, friends, here again is the point. As Christians, we are authorized by God to seek the welfare of our country, but also the welfare of all men. And as an American citizen, I want to see my country prosper. Jeremiah 29 and verse 7. Look at the text again. But seek the welfare of the city. That gives me liberty to hope for my country's prosperity. And as a member of the Abrahamic Covenant, I also want to see all nations embrace the faith of Jesus Christ and also prosper. Now let's turn to a third passage, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. In Romans 9, I want to recover a crucial point that we discovered in our work through Romans. If you were considered... Paul's attitude toward his own people, the Jews. Have you ever wondered why Paul continued to observe Jewish feasts and customs even when the New Covenant did not command it of him? Have you ever contemplated Paul's own love for his culture, his people, even his own ethnicity? Look at what Paul wrote in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Who are they? My kinsmen, my Jewish kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Now, friends, Paul is the apostle of the Gentiles, and he is writing largely to the Gentiles in Rome. Nevertheless, he confesses his supreme love for the Jews. Friends, is this some sort of ethnic bias? Is this some sort of racial prejudice? Is this some sort of extreme xenophobia? Is this a pattern for Christian nationalism? Certainly not. As the apostle to the Gentiles, whom he loved, Paul was also tireless in his efforts to reach his own people. Paul, unlike Jonah, was not a reluctant prophet to the Gentiles. But Paul, at the same time, loved the Jews. Because of that, I think it is appropriate to feel genuine love for your own tribe, your native village, your countrymen. That is perfectly biblical. Our culture has come a long way from the evil days of slavery and segregation but I think I don't have to tell you that you can almost go to another extreme and pretend that we're all sort of colorblind and culture blind. You can go to this extreme that says you, you can't even care about your own culture. You're not allowed to care about your you've got to care about everybody else, but not your own. That that's the extreme that we've come to today in some ways. And friends, that is not biblical. That is not Romans 9. It is appropriate to seek the welfare. Of your own culture, your own people, English speakers, your fellow man. It is entirely appropriate for Johnson George to love India. And that was really clear a couple of weeks when he was here. You get the sense that Johnson George loves Indians, do you not? That seems perfectly appropriate. How about Christian Wei? He loves the Chinese people. That is perfectly appropriate. How about Alfred of Jowater? It's perfectly appropriate for him to love the Ghanaians. And we support these men and their ministries to reach their people. And it is likewise entirely appropriate for Americans to love their country and to seek its redemption. You almost get the sense from some Christians that you're supposed to love everybody but your own. And friends, that is grossly unbiblical. How do you reconcile that with Romans chapter 9? You can't. It is entirely appropriate for you to love people who look like you and who speak your language and who share your culture and who share your history and who salute your flag and who weep at the tomb of an American soldier. That is entirely appropriate. The sort of anti-American Marxist attitude that sees Jesus as a revolutionary bent on subverting everything that is beautiful in any culture is not biblical. To despise your own culture and people in the name of political correctness is sin. Sin. And it ought not be done. But again, just make sure that in valuing your culture, you don't forget the Abrahamic covenant that was so foundational. You don't value your own culture so much that you forget about God's love for all cultures and all peoples and all tongues and all nations. Clearly, Paul loved his own, even while he was a missionary to the Gentiles. And in light of this, friends, let's turn finally to Revelation chapter 21, Revelation 21, and let's observe the outcome of the Abrahamic covenant. What is the destiny of the nations, plural? All those different ethnic groups. By the way, scripturally speaking, nations usually has more to do with ethnicity than boundaries, but I'm using the term a little bit more broadly today, obviously. John sees in Revelation 21 this glorious vision of a great city, the city of New Jerusalem, And there was a line in the passage that is just pregnant with meaning, but like an expectant mother waiting to meet her child. Sorry, Rachel, wherever you are. We are not going to understand the full significance of this verse, I think, until eternity. There's Rachel. Look at this wonderful line in verse 24. By its light, that's the light of the glory of God, will the nations walk And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Friends, that is the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled. God redeems the nations. And apparently the unique glories of the nations, whatever that means, the glory of something is its uniqueness. That unique glory will come parading into the city of New Jerusalem. God preserves human cultures. God preserves that diversity. God preserves those tribes and tongues and nations and He brings those nations just parading into His own city. So friends, if God takes a redemptive interest in the nations, all nations, should I not be profoundly interested in the fortunes of my own nation? If God has determined to call out His bride from every tribe and tongue and nation and bring all those people into the city of New Jerusalem, then can I as a Christian... Do any less than seek the redemption of my own tribe and tongue and nation? To do otherwise, friends, is to resist the plan and purpose of God. So let's put this all together in just four points. All right, number one, to fail to love your country is to abandon the Abrahamic covenant. Number two, to fail to love your country is to resist the counsel of Jeremiah the prophet. Number three, to fail to love your country is to ignore the example of Paul. Number four, to fail to love your country is to reject the gospel of Jesus who has a redemptive interest in all nations. Shall we pray? Father, We thank you for our country today. We thank you for the glorious heritage of your church in this country. We admit, Lord, that our country is far from perfect. We admit, Lord, that in the past, our country has made many, many, many mistakes, egregious mistakes. Even now, Lord, there's a movement to correct recent mistakes in the ruling of Roe v. Wade, and yet, Lord, we have many, many people taking to our streets and contesting and celebrating their right to kill children in their wombs. Lord, I pray that as Americans, we would seek the interests of our country, seek the welfare of our people. Lord, we thank you for the diversity that we have in our country. It is a foretaste of the new Jerusalem. We thank you for the diversity of tongues and languages in our country. It truly is a foretaste, a beautiful, beautiful foretaste of that great heavenly city. But I pray, Lord, that as people come to this country, that Christians would reach out to them with the gospel. We pray for those who are ministering in inner cities today, ministering in poverty-stricken areas today, ministering on Indian reservations today, ministering among immigrants to see them embrace the gospel. Lord, that you would just encourage these believers to redouble their efforts. And I pray that people who come to these shores would indeed find Christ and, Lord, ultimately find freedom through his gospel and by an entrance to the new Jerusalem. Lord, we pray for our leaders today. We pray for our Supreme Court justices that they would be moved by your Spirit We pray for the most recent addition to our Supreme Court, Justice Brown, just this last week, and the others, Lord, on that court, that you would cause them, Lord, to think biblically, morally, that you might impose your mind upon them for our president, vice president, members of Congress, our own state governor, local legislators. Lord, that these men and women would truly come under the influence of your spirit, that they would submit themselves to your law, and that, Lord, they would continue to provide us a place and a space where we can worship freely. We pray, Lord, that as we look forward to this July 4th holiday tomorrow, that you would just fill us with gratitude for the freedoms that we have. And, Lord, now as we turn our attention to communion, we want to confess that our freedom and the gospel comes solely from the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that Christ alone, Christ alone secured our freedom from sin. No one else made any contribution to his sacrifice. And we want to thank him and thank him alone as we celebrate communion this morning, we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Can I encourage you to open your Bible to Psalm 51? Take a few moments and read through Psalm 51 as you prepare your heart for this table. And as you read, can I ask four of our men to come and we will take communion together? Amen. Psalmist writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ and the broken body of Christ, which does indeed blot out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. We thank you for Christ, who alone has taken away our sin and given us freedom in the gospel. It's in his name that we partake. In Christ's name, amen. Father, we give you thanks for the blood. We give you thanks, Lord, for the cleansing that we find in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for accepting the atonement that he made on his cross. There is nothing left to be done. and We simply place our faith in him. We do this in remembrance of him. Looking forward to that day when, with all nations, we gather at His table. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.